Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 5. We'll be looking at Mark uh, 5, 21 through 43. I want you to think about this passage uh, through the frame of uh, a journey or a destination. I'm sure you've heard the cliche that uh, the journey uh, or the destination or the journey is more important than the destination. And you've probably seen this played out in, in movies. You know, take, for example, um, the movie Poetic Justice. Uh, so I know some of you probably haven't seen it, but a great majority of the movie takes place in a van as Tupac and Janet Jackson are making their way to uh, a new city. Think about movies such as uh, Road Trip with Ice Cube or the National Lampoon's Vacations, right? That all of these movies are not just showing you the destination is important, but you're usually getting a bird's eye view into uh, the car and to the travel and the, what it looks like to get these people from point A to point B. I want us to think about that through uh, this passage through that lens that Mark is showing us a journey. He's showing us the journey of, of two different families from their unbelief to their belief in Jesus. I think it's important that he's showing us two because I think if we're really honest, this is normally how uh, we uh, journey to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who had said, Your daughter is now dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. 
And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we do bow and ask your blessing upon your word. Father, we uh, stand here this moment uh, broken by our own sin, and, and the man here is as well, and we are in desperate need of your lavish grace, your tender mercy. We ask for it this hour that we would uh, be washed in your word, that you would cleanse us, that you would restore and give faith to us. We ask that you would transform us even in this brief moment. Help us, Lord, to see Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. Um, why am I calling this a, a journey from unbelief to belief? If you look at this passage, uh, you'll notice that there are very few red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. Uh, I do. And the red letters signify when Jesus is himself speaking. And of the uh, 22, 24 verses, you learn that Jesus only gets a few words in. He asks a few questions. Who touched my garments? He says something to the daughter. He says something to Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. And he has this dialogue with uh, the crowd as he marches into Jairus' home. And so what Mark is doing here is giving us a lot of information around what other people are experiencing, what other people are feeling, what other people are thinking. But when Jesus does speak, what he speaks matters. And what you notice here that I think everything in our passage, it hinges off of this idea of faith. And so what does he tell the woman in verse 34? He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. What does he tell Jairus in verse 36? But overhearing what he said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And so at the heart of this passage behind what's happening, what people are feeling, what Jesus is saying, the core of this passage is about faith. I think Jesus is talking to us this morning about faith. And what I want to do is just sort of work through it with uh, under four headings to see, all right, what is Jesus teaching us about faith? Because faith is important. It's the first thing that comes out of his mouth when he starts to preach. He says, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And what does Martin Luther say with that? He says, when the Lord Jesus Christ says, repent and believe, it's not just to get into the kingdom, that repentance and belief, it's a way, it's the way of the kingdom, that there's always room for us to repent and there's always room for us to believe more deeply about Jesus and his person and his work. And so this passage is about faith. Whether you're here this morning as a non-believer, Jesus would commend faith. And if you're here this morning as a believer, Jesus is still commending yet a deeper faith and trust in him. And so the question this morning is, is what is he teaching us? The first thing I think Jesus is teaching us about faith is that there is a divine hand at work behind and beneath and before your faith. Say that again. There is a divine hand at work 
beneath, before, and behind your faith. Now, what Mark does in this passage is actually beautiful. That in the earlier chapters of Mark, the only time that we, we really got names of other people, it's when Jesus was calling the, the disciples. Matter of fact, he gives us a running list of names. Here, think about some of the, the miracles that Jesus performed prior to this chapter. It says a man who had leprosy, right? It says a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue. Peter's mother-in-law, but we don't get her name, right? That there is a man who was a paralytic. That in other words, in Mark's gospel up until this point, when Jesus is encountering people that he's healing, we don't get names. And yet when you read this passage, he says there was a man whose name was Jairus. In other words, Mark is sort of giving us a detail. Think about last week when Brian preached and I listened to it. It was a, a great sermon. But, but it's a man who was possessed with demons. We didn't get the name. And yet this morning he says, no, this man is Jairus. You can go find him if you want to go find him. But notice also in the other healings, we never get an allusion to time. Mark does not tell us how long Peter's mother-in-law was sick. He doesn't tell us how long the man had, had been suffering from leprosy. He does not tell us how long the paralytic was paralyzed. He just does not give us temporal information. And yet, when you get to this passage this morning, did you catch how old the little girl is? In verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, and there's that bracket for she was 12 years of age. Now, when you look at Luke's account of this passage, Luke goes a bit further. This isn't just Jairus's 12-year-old daughter. Luke actually says this is his only daughter. And some scholars think that this might even be his only child. Now, let that wash over you. That if they have been struggling to conceive and 12 years and nine months ago before they met Jesus, their lives changed. They went from wanting a little girl and did not get a little girl to all of a sudden they got pregnant and now their lives were blessed that they could see this little girl grow up in their home and the pitter patter of her little feet would run through her house, that they were sort of on the in crowd of society. They have this family. They're seeing their dreams come to fruition. They have a family. She's 12. Did you notice how long the woman in the passage suffered with the issue of blood? It's in verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now think about this. This means that, and what we think that there's something going on, uh, possibly reproductively with her, that, that she is ceremonially unclean, she is socially unclean, she is physically unclean. And that while this family over here on the other side of town gets news that they are about to have a baby and have a baby, that's the same exact time on the other side of town where she starts to see blood and the blood does not go away in a week. 
And it does not go away in a month. And it does not go away in a year. And it does not go away in a decade. You see that? Well, this family over there, your life is good. My life over here, I'm on the outside of the covenant community. I'm unclean. I am like a leper. I cannot go into the covenant community when things are really, really good over here for you and your family. Look at me in my home. I am an outcast. And here's the thing. We don't think that they knew each other. But guess what? They met each other on this very day. They met on this very day with each 12 years over here with the daughter and 12 years with the issue of blood. And somehow on this day, they are both right here by this sea in front of Jesus. And if you're a Hebrew, then you know the number 12 isn't just a number. It's the number of fullness of completion. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 disciples. And so I can imagine when Mark is like doing his research to write this, he's like, okay, how old was the little girl? She was 12. Oh, okay. Well, wait a minute. How, old, how long had you suffered with the issue of blood? 12. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 12 and 12? I think what Mark is doing is showing us This isn't a coincidence. The fact that she's been suffering for 12 years and the precisely when her suffering began, this little girl is born. This is not a coincidence. This is the invisible hand of God working behind the scenes with his fatherly care to bring about the faith that they will get in this passage. It's God at work. That every drop of blood had this moment as a goal. It's God at work that every time this little girl celebrates a birthday, it has her 12th birthday in store because for a moment her parents will think it will be her last. It's the hand of God behind all of this. And so as we think about the faith which they do have, the question that we have to ask is, how did they get it? And what Mark would say is what they experience in the present when they are with Jesus. It started way over here. And if we're really, really honest, it starts way, way out there into the halls of eternity when God set his love and affection upon them so that when they were born and endured this life, that even to this day, he's the one that's been at work. You'll see in your bulletin, uh, as you, you don't have to turn there, but as you discuss it in your growth groups, I included the uh, uh, part from the Heidelberg Confession Here's what we sort of believe when it relates to providence, because I think we see providence all over this passage. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as, whereby as it were by his own hand, he upholds and governs the earth and all the creatures so that herbs and grass and rain and drought and fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness 
Riches and poverty, yes, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Mark's inviting us into a a view of God that is that big, that he's at work behind the scenes, beneath and before us, initiating and creating this place where we can come to faith. So where is God working? Everywhere. When is God working? All the time. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It's that kind of God. He's that big and that bold and that good. The second thing we see in our passage is the crises in our lives that can fuel our faith. What's interesting is that both of these people, both Jairus, it says that he came seeing Jesus in verse 22, and he did what? He fell at his feet. You see the same thing happening with the woman. First, she comes to Jesus from behind and kind of sneaks a touch on him. And then she comes back in verse 33, and she also trembling and fell, and she fell before him. In other words, both of them are coming before Jesus, and they are falling down. And here's the question. What drove them there? What drove them to that posture where they are falling down before the living God? You know the answer. It's suffering. It's crises. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. And this isn't the first time Jesus has done business or work related to people in the synagogue. He healed a man in the synagogue, cast out a demon in the synagogue. And so now the ruler of that synagogue is circling back, probably because he was either there or he heard reports. So what is a synagogue? Do not confuse it with the temple. There's one temple and it was in Jerusalem. But think about Jewish culture and Jewish life. The Jews were in their land, but it was occupied by Romans. And so what the Jews would do was to build a synagogue. And you would have this place in in this land where you, if you were a Jew, you could speak your own language. You could celebrate your own culture. You could educate your own children. You could throw bar mitzvahs and parties and social gatherings. You could meet there on the Sabbath day and have rabbis come and teach. If you could not make it to the temple, then what most Jews would do was go to their local synagogue to worship. Now, there was no slaughter. That was only in Jerusalem. But you could get there and read the Torah and and have exposition and fellowship with God's people. When Mark says that he was the ruler or a ruler of the synagogue, here's what he's saying. He's the worship director. He's lining up speakers. He's kind of the the guy who's putting all the events on the calendar. If you want to have a bar mitzvah and you want to have a bar mitzvah, you got to run through Jairus to make sure that they're not on the same night. Right? He's a high-ranking official, and yet you find him in our passage where? On his knees. Now, how do you get a high-ranking official on his knees before this makeshift rabbi? Because Jairus is suffering. His little girl, his only little girl, is sick, and he can't 
heal her. Benadryl won't fix it. Tamiflu won't fix this. There is nothing he has at his disposal to fix his little girl. And so you might be tempted to think that, okay, well, Jesus just wants him to come and fall down in front of everybody. And that, that's enough abasement, right? That's enough humility, right? But did you catch how this flows? Jesus is approached by Jairus when he gets off the boat. Hey, follow me. I have a daughter who's sick. And Jesus says, okay. And as they are going to Jairus' house, this other unnamed woman who has the condition of blood comes up and pulls on Jesus' coattail. And Jesus actually stops and engages her. And while he is engaging her, Jairus is over here like this, like, come on, brother. I got a little girl. She over here. And so then when Jesus finishes engaging her, Jairus is like, okay, well, we're on the way. And then Jairus' homeboy comes from the house. He's like, look, you don't even need to worry about it, brother. I, I bear bad news. Your daughter didn't make it. Jesus did not simply let Jairus bow before him. That's humility. But what you see in this passage, Jesus actually lets the girl die. And this reads a lot like Lazarus, doesn't it? Where Jesus stays so that his friend dies and showing up late to the party, what did they learn? Jesus is not just a good healer of the body. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he can even do more than you think he can do by resurrecting not just a sick living girl, but a dead corpse. Where did Jairus land? Jairus. It wasn't just a crisis. It was a crisis that he couldn't fix. I can't fix this. If I thought I could give her some medicine, then maybe, but, but I cannot raise a dead body. What about the woman with the issue of blood? Did you read the text? It says that she suffered for 12 years, but there's this, 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 this theme in there where it says, and she spent all that she had, and the doctors could not help her, and it got even worse. So it's not just that she suffered, but she actually suffered to the point where she was poor and had absolutely nothing else to give a doctor. You see what's in common with both of them? It's not just crises and suffering. It's the suffering to the magnitude that there is absolutely nothing you can do. It is desperation. It is powerlessness. It is utter human inability. You see, when we talk about the invisible hand of God that, that is beneath and before and behind our faith, here is the question that we should ask this text. What is the vehicle God puts us in to bring us to faith. And you know what that vehicle is? And he can do whatever he wants to. So I don't want to reduce him down to this. 
but a common vehicle in his fleet of bringing and working faith in the hearts and lives of his people. It's suffering. And it is powerlessness. And it is inability. And I would stretch it a bit further to honor this text. What they both have in common is not just suffering, but their bodies aren't working right. That this man has to hold or see his deceased daughter. This isn't general suffering. This is suffering that is precise enough down to the human body not working as it should. And the woman with the issue of blood, her body isn't working. Now, I think this is intentional. If you've ever had a miscarriage and you feel it, something's wrong with my body. And if you've ever had to carry a sick kid that you can't heal, something is wrong with her body. And if you've ever cared for an aging parent who has Alzheimer's, and can't remember your name, something is wrong with the body. And if you ever struggle with anxiety, and it does not matter if all is well, your body, something in your mind is not working correctly. If you've ever gone to the doctor and you figure out you have cancer, Something in your body is not working correctly. And if you're like me and you think you can play basketball with some 18-year-olds and you land on one of their feet and you hear a pop and your knee swells up the size of a grapefruit, a big grapefruit, something is wrong with your body. And if you have a heart attack, Something is wrong with the body. And if you've gone to a funeral to watch someone who's taken their life, something was wrong with the body. And if you're seven years old and you go to your first funeral and you see a person non-responsive, something is wrong with with the body. And I don't know about you, but God gets my attention when your wife has a miscarriage. It gets my attention when a friend in RUF is 41 and is dying of cancer with four kids right now. If you've been married to someone and you thought you would live to be 90 with them and the Lord brings them home at 70, you feel what the father feels in this passage. And you feel 
what the woman feels in this passage. And isn't it like God to use that? No doctor can fix this. No workout regimen can fix this. No medication can fix this. That it seems to me that one of the vehicles that God uses to humble us, to show us that we are truly like dust and back to the dust we will return, is when our bodies start to ache and betray us. And it's there that if we're really honest, we see and are faced with our mortality. It's there. That God whispers when things are good. But when you have a kid who has eating disorders, who wrestles, you start to see. And that's what's happening in the passage. Their bodies are betraying them. And this is precisely what God is using. This is the vehicle he's putting them in to bring them to faith. And I don't like that vehicle. I don't want to be in that vehicle. Put me in another vehicle, right? Don't put me in this one. And here's the thing. We're all going to get in that vehicle. All of our bodies are breaking down. They're all decaying. This is the crises. This is the crises. The third thing is the foolishness of faith in the midst of the crises. And this sounds absolutely ludicrous in the eyes of the world. I mean, can you actually think about what's happening in the passage? I love the humor. I love that Mark puts humor in this passage because I think we're getting a window into how we look as Christians to the world as we think about our final hope. It looks absolutely foolish and laughable. And Mark shows us in the passage, did you notice the implicit laughter in the disciples in verse 31? Jesus gets touched, his, his garments, which are connected to his body, they get touched and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, yo, homeboy, you all right today? The crowds are thronging around you. Who did not touch you, right? That there's a sense of comedy here. Why? Because they have no clue that Jesus Christ knows when the hand of a person touches his individual body in faith amongst the crowd. They don't see it. Did you catch what happened when Jesus went to the house as Jesus was talking to the woman, Jairus' daughter dies, and people are weeping and wailing loudly? And Jesus says in verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And verse 40, what does it say they did to the Lord of glory? They laughed at him. Now, why would you laugh at Jesus 
when Jesus walks into a room and says, your little girl is not dead but sleeping, how can you laugh if you don't believe that he is the resurrection and the life? It's anti-faith. If you don't believe he, who he is and what power is at his disposal and the breaking in of the kingdom and what's been entrusted to him, then for him, the little girl is sleeping. But without faith, you don't see that. It's comical. It's comical, bruh, that you want me to believe that this little girl is sleeping. And you know what? This isn't the first time God has laughed at in the Bible. You remember what God told Sarah and Abraham? He says, yo, homeboy, I know you're 100 years old and I know your wife 90, but next year y'all go have a little shorty, right? That's my translation, right? Genesis 17, and the text actually says, Abraham laughed at God. And then they rolled up on Abraham's tent And his wife is now there and she listens behind the tent and she hears the promise again. You will this time next year, you will have a son. And she laughs at God. And then God kind of calls her out. Yo, why why are you laughing? I didn't laugh. Oh, oh, you laughed. I heard you. (laughs) And they're laughing in this passage. At Jesus. Our theology of the body and of the future resurrection, fear not who can kill the body, fear the one who can kill the body and cast our soul into hell. Our theology of the body, of what Jesus will do when he returns in glory to the body, it is laughable to the world. But if the world would look and listen, you would see That you're wasting away, brother. You're wasting away, sister. And you don't have to. It's laughable. It looks foolish. And to be really, really honest, if you're scared when the crises of your bodies come, join the club. We all are. I'm scared to leave my children. All right? Lord, just let me live until they're this age so I can see them out. And you're scared to leave your wife. You're scared to die alone in your apartment with no spouse to sit there for days before somebody finds you. You're scared of that. And this theology of the body and what Jesus is going to do on our worst days, it's laughable. And yet, what you see in the passage is it's beautiful. And the final thing we see in the passage is the destination of faith. If we're talking about faith through this lens that God's hand has been at work, And that God puts us in suffering to bring us to faith. The question is, where does he want to take us? Where is the destination? And it might be tempting to think that his final destination 
is to heal your daughter of her physical sickness. And Jesus does that, right? He goes into Jairus' house and he touches the little girl, Talitha Kumi, I say to you, rise. And the little girl rises. It might be tempting to think that Jesus' destination is to heal this woman with this issue of blood so that she's no longer bleeding. But, but, but there's a clue in the passage. Look at it with me carefully. Notice in verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Look at verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So the healing is done in verse 29. Go down to verse 34. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Wait a minute, brother. She was healed of her disease in verse 29. So what disease are you talking about in verse 34 that she is healed of? Here's the thing. God's ultimate agenda, his final destination is not just to fix your life now. And it's not just to heal this woman and it's not just to raise this girl. There is a double healing that they need on that day. They need a healing of the soul. They need to have their sins atoned for. And so what God does is he brings them, the unclean people, to Jesus, and they're trusting in Jesus on that day, and they are saved. They are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beautiful light. And then guess what else they get on that day? Here's what we believe. We believe in something called glorification. Justification says that I'm made right with God by faith in him now. Sanctification says that over time and by God's grace, I'm going to start to look more and more like Jesus. And there is still indwelling sin. And I have these things in my life that I wrestle with. But by God's grace, we're going to be victorious in some areas. And we're going to have strides forward and strides backwards. But I'm still his child in this space. And then glorification. That is the day and the time when I will no longer sin and sin will no longer be, be in me. I will be transformed and made just like Jesus, right? And what comes with glorification is God making all things completely new. And so what Jesus is doing in this passage, the woman and the kid and maybe the whole family that have come to Jesus in faith, he's pulling the veil back. When my kingdom comes in its utter fullness Little 12-year-old girls don't lose their lives. They don't get sick. And my women, they don't struggle with female things. In this new kingdom that I'm bringing, there is perfect healing, and there will be food and drink and dancing and laughter and joy and worship. And what Jesus does is he breaks that into here right now on them. And so they get a foretaste. This little girl who, was died, who had died because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he resurrects her and lets her eat and go skip off into the races. 
And this woman who had this issue of blood that no doctor could cure and who is not named in this passage, he says, I have a name for you and your name is my daughter. That's what he calls her, my daughter. The little girl who is healed, I'm your heavenly father. And I can heal you when your earthly father cannot. And let me show you. You're safe with me. Here's what this means for us this morning. If you're here and you see the breakdown of the body, I have really good news for you. Your Savior is making all things new. And if you're here this morning and a loved one has gone on to be with the Lord, that is not the end. You will see him or her and Jesus again in glory. He will not lose one of his sheep. Not one. And it means that if you got the cancer report, God can work with or without doctors. He is still on the throne. He does not need or depend on medicine, but he's pleased to use it, right? That same power for God to bring about healing, it's there. And if God chooses not to heal your earthly body, you still win. He brings you home with him and you have healing there forevermore. And that is good news. I entitled our sermon, Jesus Gets the Last Laugh, because I think he does. When you read the passages in Genesis 17 and 18, they're laughing at God. And then one year later, Sarah gets pregnant. Well, one year later, she has the baby, right? And one, 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 one guy that I like to read, he says, just the beauty of that, that, that they're having her on the geriatric ward and Medicare is picking up the tab, right? <laughs> like that image, right? That, that, that's how outlandish that idea was. But did you notice what God told them, you will call your son? His name will be Isaac. And you know what Isaac means? It means laughter. Think about that picture. You're laughing at God because God told you, I'm going to give you a son. And then God says, by the way, I want you to name your child laughter. Because every time you call him Isaac, you're, tell, you're communicating that I get the last laugh and that I'm faithful. And that's what happens in our passage. They're laughing at Jesus. It's no way you know who did this. It's no way this little girl lives. And Jesus says, okay, let me show you. Now, I'm going to exit stage right, and I get the last laugh, says Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and commit our time to you and pray that you would, by your Spirit, work a deeper faith and trust in our hearts and lives. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.